Hello, I'm Dr. Stephen Hassan with another episode of the Influence Continuum. And I'm very, very interested in uh, our guest for today. Um, Dr. Steve Daly uh, is a licensed psychologist, church historian. Uh, I hope you don't uh, uh, mind, Dr. Daly, um, but I'm gonna puff, I'm gonna read your bio because people should know. <laughs> You've authored 28 books. As someone who's authored four, I'm like astounded that you're that <laughs> prolific. Good for you. Uh, including 11 on Seventh-day Adventism and Ellen White, including two doctoral dissertations and a master's thesis in history. Wow, I did one dissertation and that was quite enough. So again, my <laughs> hat's off to you, uh, Dr. Daly. Uh, you've taught in the fields of history, psychology, religion at Loma Linda University and La Sierra University, which are seven-day Adventist schools in Southern California for 24 years. Um, your most influential book while in Adventism was Adventism for a New Generation, which was used as a textbook in several SDA universities. But in 2010, you left Adventism and went to work as a psychologist for UCLA. Uh, your most influential book since leaving Adventism has been Ellen G. White, A Psychobiography, which you kindly sent me a copy of. And for those people looking at the video, here's a, a visual um, of the front cover of the book. And... Um, it's the most comprehensive and well-documented work available that exposes both the fraud and pathology of the prophet founder of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. Uh, lastly, you're the founder of Keys Family Resource Center, which has received more than a million dollars in grants, and Graceway Community Church in Riverside, California, where you currently are a pastor. And you're married to a wonderful wife for 48 years, father of three amazing children, six awesome grandchildren. We're, we're going to leave, leave it there, but just thank you for reaching out to us and wanting to educate us about a, a group that has millions, millions of, of believers still involved with it. Is that correct, Doctor? Yes, yes. So tell us your story. Tell us how you... Uh, became fascinated in this topic and what motivated you to write so prolifically? Well, I'll try to be brief, but I, I grew up in Adventism. My, my parents weren't hardcore conservative Adventists, especially my dad. My mother was more conservative and her grand, her mother was particularly conservative. Mm -hmm. She was an Ellen White fanatic, I would say. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, as a young kid, I, wasn't all that attracted to Adventism. I love sports. My dad was an athlete. I got heavily involved in sports, but the Adventist church was uh, condemning of competitive sports. So I, I went to public school initially and, and was doing well in sports, uh, baseball, football, and basketball. I loved all three. And um, then my dad got a little more pulled into the religion and uh, largely because of my mom. And they decided to put me in Adventist schools in junior high. And my sports life got really wiped out because of that, because there were no sports competitive programs in Adventism. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, 
obviously that wasn't a fun thing for me, but I happened to have a uh, powerful spiritual experience at the age of 16 that uh, convinced me that God was actually real. I, I wasn't particularly attracted to the Adventism that I was being exposed to in the schools mm. or in the Sabbath schools. But this experience with God uh, convinced me that he was real. And, um, you know, I, I got a lot more serious about spirituality at that point. Uh, I went to an Adventist boarding school called Real Indo Academy. And um, I was actually seriously thinking about going into the ministry. There were a lot of things about that school that really annoyed me. It was very kind of hardcore conservative Adventism. Uh, you know, manual labor, they forced anyone who did wrong to carry rocks up and down a cliff, uh, down really? to the river, and yeah, dig dig uh, graves and fill them back in. And I mean, that kind of wow. stuff, it was uh, pretty ugly. And there were a lot of rules and regulations that really turned me off. I saw a lot of my friends kicked out of school. This was in the middle of the baby boom when they had more students that, than they knew what to do with, so... I yep. did decide I'm, I'm going to go into the ministry and try to change the church, try to make it more friendly to its young people, mm -hmm. try to, um, you know, see if but I doctor, can make a difference. But doctor, forgive me, but for our listeners who know nothing about Seventh-day Adventism, perhaps never heard of Ellen G. White, can you go back and give us the historical time and how? Yes, yes. Please. And then we'll <laughs> yeah. come back to your story about your evolution, All right. uh, which well, is fascinating. Adventists came out of the 19th century culture, just like Mormonism and Jehovah's Witnesses. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of similarities between Adventists and Mormons and to a lesser degree with Jehovah's Witnesses. But um, it, it was in 1844 that the Adventist movement started, and it was a um, rollover from the Millerite movement. Those mm. who've heard of that, they pronounced the end of the world on October 22, 1844. And all the uh, founders, all, all the people that accepted the Advent movement had come out of the Millerite disappointment. And they were really desperate people at that point. You know, mm -hmm. their, their lives had fallen apart. Many of them had sold their possessions. They this is a very small group of people, about 150 at the most, that tried to hang on and say, hey, something really happened there on October 22. Miller himself and the other Millerites all said, hey, we were wrong. We got to move on. But this group said, no, no, something really happened there. Probation has closed. The end of the world has come. Uh, we're the only ones who are going to be saved. Anyone who leaves our group will be lost. Mm. And... Um, you know, the people that had questions about that um, basically latched on to Ellen White's vision as a 17-year-old in December of 1844. She had this vision from God where he showed her the exact day and hour of his coming and uh, that probation had closed, that the whole wicked world was lost, that only this group would be saved, and uh, anyone who left the group would be lost for eternity. So this was called the shut door doctrine. Mm -hmm. And this was uh, taught by Ellen White in this group for seven full years. They also embraced something called the seven-year theory, which said Christ was actually going to return on October 22, 1851. Uh -huh. so, so for seven years, they're uh, buying into this shut door stuff. 
And in the meantime, Ellen White is making money. Her, her and her husband, James, uh, she married him in 1845. They were as poor as church mice, no education, nothing. Uh, but they were pretty good con people. Mm. And uh, they held on to this small group. But um, in 1849, for example, Ellen White gets a vision from God, which says the people were all to sell their homes and their possessions and give them to the cause. The cause was controlled by James and Ellen White. Mm. And uh, Sounds familiar. So, yeah, got, a, they had, got a vision. <laughs> so giving money. And the people believed this, these visions, uh, right. even though a bunch of them had been proven wrong. For example, mm. in 1845, she said God showed her he was going to return in June, by the end of June. It didn't happen. Then when they were confronted, uh, when Ellen was confronted, she said, well, the angel showed me in the language of Canaan, and I misunderstood it. It's actually September. So he will return by the end of September, 1845. Of course, that was proven wrong again. And so then she gets into the seven-year theory where he's going to return on October 22, 1851. But in the meantime, she's telling everyone to sell everything they have in 1849. And her and James suddenly come into some wealth and buy their first home while she's telling everyone else to sell their homes. <laughs> and, I mean, it, it's amazing that the movement ever survived that first seven-year period because it was as cultic as you can possibly get. Yeah, and it's pretty unusual world. for a woman to start a cult, especially in the 19th century, I think. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think the only reason she succeeded was uh, because these people were so desperate. Mm -hmm. You know, they were so desperate coming out of the disappointment of 1844 that they just wanted to latch on to anything that could possibly give them hope. And here she claims to have these visions from God, and they were naive enough to embrace them and accept them. And so for seven years, you know, it was a tiny little group. And then right. once, once the 1851 thing failed, then they started, they covered it up. They lied about what she'd said. All that was deleted from their publications. And then they went on and started growing as a movement because they became a little more healthy and not 100% cultic. But mm. the movement has always had a lot of cultic aspects to it. And uh, it has always had extreme dishonesty. You know, mm. I, I like to call Adventists the clever cult hmm. because I think they're more clever than the Mormons. I think they're more clever than the Jehovah's Witnesses. There's a lot more Adventists that are highly educated than what you see in those movements. So as the church has become more sophisticated, it's become more clever in its dishonesty. Well, Dr. Daly, I just returned from Utah, uh, where I gave a number of interviews and talks and even a recovery workshop for ex-Mormons. And mm -hmm. honestly, I was astounded how many doctors and lawyers and major politicians are in that cult and how wealthy that cult is. Yeah, uh, they, they are. Have, they are extremely wealthy, more yeah. so than Adventists. Yeah, for sure. So explain the doctrine that made them call themselves Seventh-day Adventists, please. Yes. Um, the Seventh-day Sabbath wasn't unique to Adventists. Uh, Joseph Bates, uh, who was one of the three co-founders, there was Ellen White, James White, and then Joseph Bates. And they, Ellen duped Joseph Bates. He was a ship captain. He was one of the 
few fairly wealthy people in in that early Adventist movement that was largely pretty poor people. Mm-hmm. But uh, he'd been a ship captain. Um, he'd retired. Uh, he, you know, wasn't really sold on the visions. He wasn't really buying this visionary stuff. So Ellen and James set up a house meeting that they knew he would be at, and he was extremely interested in astronomy. He had even written a book on astronomy, and they knew that. And um, so Ellen claims to go into this dramatic vision in this meeting, and and she's waving her arms and flying through space and uh, seeing all the planets and and God showing her the planets in our solar system. And, And she's drawing directly on Bates' book. So he's, and she claims she'd never read it, of course. And uh, this is a common thing for her. She plagiarized all of her life and claimed she didn't read the book she plagiarized from. And anyway. Uh, Joseph Smith did the same, right, apparently. Right. Uh, she even plagiarized from Joseph Smith, which mm. is interesting. Was but, she in uh, New York also when yeah, she started this? Yeah, she was in the burned over district there. Okay. And, uh you know, the whole movement came out of that northeast part of the U.S. But um, Mm -hmm. basically they duped uh, Bates through this vision into believing that God was showing her all this stuff. And she threw in a few things that weren't in his book, such as God was showing her live beings who lived on Jupiter and Saturn. So uh, at that time, of course, they didn't know any better. And she claimed he was showing her all the moons of these planets, which at that time fit with Bates's book. But today we know that it was completely inaccurate because we right. know there are way more moons. So, I mean, today we know that was a complete farce, but right. Bates didn't. So he got duped into it and um, he became one of the three co-founders. And basically he's the one that got the Seventh-day Sabbath from the Seventh-day Baptists. Uh-huh. And you might ask, well, why are the Seventh-day Baptists this tiny little group in the world? And Adventists are this huge group in comparison. And it all it always boils down to one thing, the visions, the claim visions of Ellen White. Uh-huh. Baptists have never claimed any of this stupid kind of stuff. Uh-huh. But, but Ellen White did. And and every I can show how every single doctrine the Adventists believe can be traced directly to a vision of Ellen White. Mm-hmm. I mean and, and they um, believe in in the Sabbath. So Saturday is a day of rest, not Sunday. Am I remembering right, correctly? Right. That's what they got from the Seventh-day Baptists. And, and Ellen White, of course, sees it in vision, and it's the most important commandment. And uh, so that became the identity mark along with the shut door. Mm. They were still holding on to the shut door that the whole world was lost, except their 150 people until 1851. Then when they finally get exposed that that's a joke, they drop the shut door, but they hold on to the Seventh-day Sabbath. And that's really the identity of Seventh-day Adventists more than anything else, along with Ellen White being the the last day prophet of the world, which Mm -hmm. they still hold on to. That's still part of their fundamental beliefs. Um, So they still have this thing where a lot of sophisticated Adventists know she was a joke. But the vast majority of the church, still they sell her books like mad. They promote her like mad. She's the basis of, of the religion. Uh-huh. So she uh, made money selling books? So these were oh, just yes. other people making money no, off she, of her? Her and James became very wealthy, uh, not just through her books, but for 
her visions, you know, telling everyone to sell everything they have. Uh, and, and both James and Ellen went around to all the churches and they sold trinkets, they sold charts, they sold hymnals. They, they made more than a million dollars in our money today just from the hymnals they were selling around at the churches. Uh, they, Ellen made up dress patterns. She told everyone how they needed to dress. And then she sold them dress patterns that were, the, the cost would be $25 in our money today, uh, which is going, it'd probably be more now because with our recent inflation. But, um, you know, they made a fortune. They became multimillionaires. And then they put forward this thing that they were these humble servants. And this is the, the view the church tries to give of them that they lived at a modest level when in reality they lived at a very luxurious level. Yeah. Ellen condemned all jewelry, but she owned a great deal of jewelry and wore it. And I mean, there's so much hypocrisy there. It drives you nuts. Yep. And uh, Dr. Daly, you kindly filled out the bite model of authoritarian control on this church and, um, was tell me your thoughts having looked at the bite model and my work and where it yeah, fits. Yeah, it was great. I love that model. Um, and I read up on that model with other churches that filled it out as well. Mm -hmm. The last two weekends, uh, we had a live group in our church and also a large group online. More than a hundred comments came in as we went through uh, the first week, you know, behavioral control and information control. And then this last weekend, we went through thought control and emotional control. Oh, and, awesome. Uh, it, the, it's, a, it's a huge group of people. I, I, you know, when I started my Facebook page after I wrote my, this uh, psychobiography, I'd never been on Facebook much. Yeah. And so I went from having virtually no friends to having the maximum 5,000 friends in a year. Yep. And, uh, and I have an open forum every day, and there's way more people that's open to the public. So... I'm sure yeah. people are so interested in a scholar who was raised in it and someone who did their due diligence to learn the Bible and to become a, a, a pastor as well. as You're not just a s academic and teacher, but you're also someone who lives, lives your faith. Um, yes. Please explain a little bit more about what a psychobiography is, because I think that's yeah, fascinating. Yeah, that's a good question. It's a whole field of literature today that's become much more popular. Uh, for those who have Mormon background, uh, Robert Anderson has written a great psychobiography of Joseph Smith in the Book of Mormon. Uh, he was on my reading uh, group for my psychobiography, and we had some very interesting conversations about the similarities of Adventism and Mormonism and how they both ignore the absolute source documentation that demonstrates both were complete frauds. And right. <laughs> it, it's, uh, you know, it, it's interesting. Psychobiography is, is a combination of both history and psychology. And uh, my book is very heavily historically documented. So, you know, you could write a psychobiography that would lean more on the psychology and less on the history. Mine leans more on the history that is very thoroughly documented because I knew there would be all kinds of challenges. Right. And then the psychological aspects are interpretive based on the historical evidence. So mm -hmm. 
You right. know, there's a wide spectrum of books that would be called psychobiography. Um, but um, I know, remember some, Erickson wrote Young Man Luther. That's yeah, Young one Man of the Luther first. Luther was one of the first that influenced me. He also, you know, there, there, there's quite, there was a great Freud wrote them. There, there were a number of uh, psychobiographies that influenced me early on. Mm-hmm. Erickson wrote one on Gandhi as well that influenced mm-hmm. me. But, um, you know, you have a wide spectrum there. You you can have a psychobiography that focuses largely on pathology, or you can have one that's attempting to be more a full biography of the person. Right. In my case, I did focus more on pathology. The, the real question I was asking in the book is, uh, do all the accusations of fraud and pathology that have been leveled against Ellen White throughout her lifetime, will they, and after her lifetime, will they stand up to psychological and historical scrutiny? So that's really the question I was addressing in my book. And, um, you know, we've had scholars throughout the Adventist church challenged on major forums, uh, Christian scholars, forum, uh, um, SDA Q&A. These are major forms that go all over I the world. I believe Walter Martin wrote a chapter on, on Seventh-day Adventists, too, in Kingdom of the Cults. Am I right? Yes. Uh, I'm glad you brought up, Martin, because uh, when I talk about Adventists being a clever cult, the the one time where Adventists were just completely lumped with Jehovah's Witnesses Mormons was back in the 1950s and before. And the uh, for a short period, there was a group of leaders in the Adventist church that recognized, hey, we are a cult. Everyone knows we're a cult. We want to get out of this. So uh, what they did was they really duped Walter Martin. They, uh-huh. th- this was the president of the general conference, you know, figure. So they're telling him, hey, we're really not a cult. And to prove it, we're going to write this book, Questions on Doctrine, that shows that we're not a cult. So they try to write this evangelical book, and Martin got sucked into it. So he took them out of the cult category that he'd placed them in in previous books. And then that administration got thrown out of office because uh, the church in general, they lied to Martin. They misrepresented what Adventism was. So they got thrown out of office for it, and they no longer published the Questions on Doctrine book. And Martin started getting letters from people all over the world who had been fired for believing what was in questions on doctrine. So he, uh, you know, went on TV and was in a major series of debates with William Johnson that are still available on the Internet, where he went back and and basically said, Ellen is a false prophet Mm. and had been a sorical. But uh, he was going to write another book on that before, but he died. And so. Right. That's the last evidence that we have that he changed was uh, right. So tell 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 my listeners your your guesstimates of how many people are still involved. I know that you had mentioned before we started recording that they claim a much larger number than you yes. think is in reality. But yeah, share they claim both more numbers. Than, uh, they claim more than twenty million members worldwide. Uh, Mormons are clearly bigger than Adventists in the United States. But worldwide, they claim to be equal to or even greater than Mormons. And hmm. Adventists do have a lot of church members overseas. But hmm. so much of that is just not accurate. You know, hmm. they'll 
they'll have a bunch of people come in in Africa and they're all gone the next week or whatever. Yes. But, uh, the Mormons have that trouble in Africa right, too. Of course, right. they force people to do 10% tithing and they're yeah, very Adventists poor. Adventists do the same thing. Adventists uh, have a required, which is an interesting uh, issue by itself because in 1858, uh, Adventists weren't required to pay tithe. It was a free will offering uh, like the New Testament talks about Mm-hmm. But they weren't bringing in enough money to satisfy them. Uh, so James White says, hey, we got the Old Covenant Sabbath. Why why shouldn't we have the Old Covenant tithing system? Mm. Uh, but that did not go over well. The members were saying, forget this. So Ellen has a vision condemning everyone to hell who doesn't buy into this. Right. And <laughs> so Phobia the, programming, yes, 101. Yes. Uh, so the church ends up, you know, that, this has been really the secret for Adventism, forcing this 10% tithe on everyone who's considered to be a member in good standing. Mm. And then they ask for offerings above that. So, you know, you're talking 15% of a person's income that has to go to the church if they're kind of members in good standing. But Right. So the, the Jehovah's Witnesses have a governing body. They no longer have a head person. Mormons have a living prophet. What's the organizational structure of Seventh-day Adventists? It's an extremely hierarchical system that was put into place in 1901. Uh, They had different systems before that, but Ellen White uh, with A.G. Daniels pushed for this current system that hasn't changed since 1901. And it's extreme hierarchy. It has the general conference, it has divisions, then it has unions. It has regions, it has conferences, then it has churches. So you got six levels of bureaucracy, and they'd all have to be fed by the tithe dollar. And they yeah. have all these educational institutions and you know medical health institutions. So there's a huge amount of uh, institutionalism in Adventism that all gets fed by this tithing or tax system, really. Yeah. And... Um, And they're in trouble now because people more and more are catching on and the younger generation isn't buying into it the way the older generation did. The church is trying to change and become less cultic, but at the same time, then they lose their hardcore supporters. Right. So they have a lot of problems right now. And the last thing they want to see is a book like mine or the current one I'm writing on uh, the white estate fraud with the Nancy, she's on my thread, and she was the granddaughter of um, Carrie Johnson, who wrote this book, destroying the main uh, the main critic of Adventism, who was D.M. Canwright. And his books were gaining a lot of momentum. Mm. Uh, you know, the churches Adventists are the most critical group of other churches you'll ever find. They just destroy all other churches. And, you mean uh, to tell me there's no other <laughs> way to be saved than Seventh-day Adventism, Doc? Absolutely. <laughs> and, and that came from Ellen White, too. Yeah. And But she was also unbelievably critical, critical of all Protestants, all Catholics. I mean, you name it, she, she annihilated them and condemned them. But mm. Adventists, you know, they're trying to slowly grow out of that because it's so embarrassing. Right. But the reality is that... Um, 
they've had this extreme hostility towards all other churches. So the other churches, of course, were glad to call them a cult. And D.M. Canwright was the main critic who knew Ellen White. He like lived in their home and knew them well and exposed them. And so they just completely fabricated this book um, called I Was Canwright's Secretary, where Carrie Johnson claimed that she worked for Canwright and made up every lie in the world about him. He wow. was demon-possessed when he dictated to her. He went into demonic rages. and I mean, this guy was a good Christian minister, uh-huh. and, and they just paint him to be the most ugly person that ever lived on the planet, you know, and that's how they look at him. So I'm but, I'm taking it that members uh believe in demon possession. So fear is a big a big factor in control there. Fear is a big thing in Adventism. Um, you know, um there there's no question I have a, a chapter in my book in fear eority. And uh, fear and phobias are are a big thing in Adventism, especially about the last days. Adventists believe that there's going to be a universal Sunday law where everyone is going to be forced to worship on Sunday on the entire planet. And anyone who worships on Saturday is going to be persecuted and put to death. And I mean, it's just these completely irrational fears, but they come out of... uh, Ellen White's writings. She she saw everything in vision. She claimed that everything she said to the church was directly from the throne of God. Mm -hmm. There was no error. There was nothing that could be questioned. So there's been this great intolerance for anyone who dares to question the prophet, you know, and that's what I grew up with. Right. So you like I when I interviewed the ex-elder of Jehovah's Witnesses, I know that they indoctrinate young children with Armageddon, that judgment Day right. is coming any second. They believed in corporal punishment uh, parallel to. Uh, yeah. Adventists are even worse. They, they have what they call the investigative judgment. And when you go to their schools, this is what you're taught that. Uh, You know, instead of Jesus coming back in 1844, what really happened was he went from the holy place in heaven to the most holy place, which is completely unbiblical. But what he did there was he started judging the entire world and he he started with all the dead people. And now he's judging the living. Um, And of course, he starts with Adventists because Adventists know more than everyone else. So judgment begins with the house of God. So what I was literally taught, you know, as a kid was your name could come up in that investigative judgment today. And if all your sins are not 100 percent, not just forgiven, but overcome, you have to be sinlessly perfect once your name comes up in the investigative judgment uh, or you're lost. So, you know, this extreme perfectionism that's and then this terrible time of troubles coming and you have no intercessor. The Holy Spirit leaves the earth. So you have to stand on your own merits uh, against all the fires of hell. (laughs) It's just the most guilt-producing, ridiculous. And I know so many kids and friends, and my own brother, you know, they just got completely scared to hell by all this. And um, I bet. And I mean, for the most part, I said, this is nonsense. And if I hadn't had the experience at 16, I would have never had anything to do with Adventism, but, Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's, uh, unfortunate that 
that the church is so resistant to change. I, I did my very best to try to help change the church in a more healthy direction during my 35 years of ministry and working as a psychologist. And, you know, what I heard again and again and again was the same old stuff. Uh, you must legalism. be very threatening to them, both being a past, a former member, a pastor, and a psychologist who's yeah, treating I, people. I, I think I, not to be immodest, but I think I know as much about Adventism as any person in the world. And, um, you know, there's a good reason why none of their scholars have agreed to interview with me, talk with me, debate with me. There's a good reason that not a single review of my book has refuted any of my source documentation or historical evidence. They just they just try to accuse me of bitterness. You know, that that's the Adventist way. Oh, he's bitter against which is not true at all. You know, right. I, I love my years in Adventism. I was happy. I enjoyed life. Uh, I, I was in very fulfilling positions. But, uh, you know, I did my best up until 2010 to try to change. And it was obvious that the resistance just kept getting more and more. So I got the job offer from UCLA and left the church and started this other, this, this whole group just left Adventism because we were lied to by the general conference in our, uh, or, or the conference president. So they just said, Hey, we're, we're out of here. Would you pastor us? And I said, sure, I will. Yeah. That, yeah. So, you know, I have to, you know, my story being in the Moonies cult and now it's 47 years of activism and I love people who are whistleblowers. And that's when yeah. we first, uh, we were first in touch with each other. And I looked at all of the research and all the books you wrote in your history. I was like, I really want to know Dr. Steve Daly. So kudos to you on that. I would like to just say before we move on in the in interview that I did a uh, TEDx talk, how can I know if I've been brainwashed? And I do a little story on the Moonies, but I basically outline a four-step reality testing strategy of one, take a time out from the group, like being mm -hmm. involved daily in the group, the walk in nature, you know, like just sleep, eat, exercise, etc. Then uh, study models of mind control, particularly Chinese communist mind control. And mm. my, my bite model of authoritarian control is based on that. But the third, and that's where we come to you, is like seek out former members and critics and yes. with an open mind, hear what they have to say. Because if you're in a mind control group, you're programmed to dismiss any former member or any critic Absolutely. without Absolutely. consideration. But I say, look, you're an intelligent adult. You can decide if there's facts, if there's you know historical documentation or real, real experiences. Hear what they have to say and then reflect honestly over your life experience, looking at the bite model, listening to the, the concerns that ex are expressed by ex-members and critics. And then you have your answer, you know, and ask yourself, if I knew then what I know now, would you have stayed? And, right. and, um, and if the answer is no, I w would have liked sports. If I had known, <laughs> you know, I, I would have left then. And, and in which case, it's time 
time to move on and, yeah. and take the good from from the experience, but move Absolutely. on. Absolutely. Yeah, there's always good to be found in everything, and there's a lot of good in Adventism and a lot of good in Mormonism. You know, both have built institutions all over the world, and I'd be the you know first to say there's a lot of good and there's a lot of great people. Well, I have a lot of I, friends, family, others, but yeah, um, nice people for sure. Is there a, a similar two-year missionary program with? Seven day There's Adventist. a real strong emphasis on missions, and they're called student missions that go out of the universities. I was actually in charge of that when I was at La Sierra University. Mm-hmm. But it's not a mandated thing the way it is in Mormonism. I uh, see. It's strongly encouraged, and they give kudos to the students who do this and stuff. But um, mm-hmm. it's not mandated the same way that you see it done in, in Mormonism. And Got what it. I find on my thread is that... Um, you know, it's 90 to 95 percent people who are former uh, Adventists and uh, resonate 100 percent with where I'm coming from. Then there's a very small percentage that we would call apologists who are on there trolling and trying to argue for the Adventist way and trying right. to combat what's being talked about on the thread. And and they are so uh, unbelievably close-minded that, you know, we, we often get a, quite a kick out of their arguments and what they try to do. When, when you talk about people being honest, you know, you, you, there has to be some kind of honesty there to acknowledge the source documentation. And right. one of the things Ellen White did to reinforce uh, this brainwashing was to have visions that said the bright lights are going to go out. You know, the, the most educated people are going to reject the truth. And so just be prepared for that. You know, she's kind of immunizing the church from anyone who's intelligent, recognizing what's going on. Right. Oh, Ellen prophesied this. So, you know, these people are scared to death that if they leave Adventism, they're lost for eternity. Right. Adventists still think that, you know. Uh, I'm lost for eternity because I was an Adventist all these years and now I've left the church. And um, Adventists would no longer say generally that everyone outside Adventism was lost for eternity. That was the party line for a long time. Uh But now they'd say, well, if you don't know the truth, you know, you might not be lost. But if you've been in the truth and you leave, then you're lost for sure. And uh yeah, it's far worse to know the <laughs> truth and leave it than never know it at all. God That's will right. <laughs> give you a, an extra, you know, uh, you know, uh, permission if you uh, didn't know. But you know, shame on you. Um, so many interesting parallels, and and uh, the Seventh Day Adventists in the United States are um, unlike the Jehovah's Witnesses' interest in politics, perhaps. Generally speaking, the, the, the past has been that Adventists were kind of apolitical, especially early on. Ellen White said it was even a sin to vote and, you know, all kinds of stuff. But um, they were totally apolitical initially because time was going to end. You know, the world was over. So why right. get involved in politics? But then Ellen got involved uh, when you get into the 1860s in health reform. She was a strong prohibitionist. She was... Uh, an abolitionist to some degree, um, although she had some racist comments that were not pretty, kind of like Brigham Young. But, um, you know, the bottom line is that uh, 
she uh, got off into this health reform stuff where she was copying from all the health reformers of her day. Mm-hmm. And she started going around to the churches, pushing her health reform. And, you know, people were saying, hey, why are you going to these other churches? That's that's the devil. Oh, okay. Well, you know, God's shown me now that he's changing. It's kind of okay to vote. You can even vote on Sabbath if you vote against, uh, you know, alcohol. If if you're for temperance reform, uh-huh. then you can vote even on Saturday. So, And then the Blair Bill uh, in 1889 was another big one for Adventists where there was an actual Sunday law in a state that they were talking about nationalizing. So Adventists went crazy. This is why Ellen White writes all this stuff about Sunday laws, because she wrote Great Controversy, their big book in this area, in 1889. And that's right when the Blair Bill was going before Congress. It failed, so that never came up again. But for Adventists, that's that's going to happen. You know, universal Sunday laws. It's pretty funny. So Sunday is the equivalent of the Jewish Sabbath that needs, you can't do work, etc. Am I remembering correctly? Uh, the, the Sunday laws, you mean? Yeah. yeah they, they would close down stores on Sunday and all that kind of stuff. Uh, you know, this, this was before the major influx of Catholics and it was still a Protestant America at that point. Uh-huh. So uh, there was enough Protestant push for Sunday legislation, but it failed and, you know, Catholics came in. And now I have an, I mean, now America is a secular uh, country as opposed to either Protestant or Christian. So, you know, the, no- the notion that we're going to have some kind of national Sunday laws, absolute nonsense. But Adventists still believe this 100%. You know, mm-hmm. if, you, mm-hmm. if you say there won't be a universal Sunday law, oh, you're, you're of the devil for sure. But uh, So let me ask you also, the Jehovah's Witnesses, Scientology, uh, the Moonies have a very strong excommunication uh, policy. Mormons, mm-hmm. too, not quite as extreme as the JWs. Uh, what about the Seventh-day Adventists? Yeah, Adventists and Mormons are are very similar in this regard. They're both trying to become culturally more accepted. They're they have their big PR machines. They have all their publications that are brainwashing people. And you know, it's kind of like Pravda, only a hmm. religious publication. And um, so Adventists are really trying hard to be culturally accepted. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, Mormons too. They're, they're very similar. Um, yeah. but the bottom line is that they're trying to hide a lot. They're trying to, uh, you know, suppress anything that exposes them, such as my book, <laughs> they, they right. go crazy about this kind of stuff. Uh, so if a young person in college reads your book, their parents are still very into a church. The son says, we got to read, you got to read Steve Daly's psycho a biography of Ellen White. What's what's the predicted reaction? Well, you know, it would be don't read that book, but read this rebuttal to it. You know, mm-hmm. uh, Ron Numbers, who's the most famous historian, he used to be Adventist. He's not anymore, but he's a, a great, well-known historian in the world. Uh, he wrote Prophetess of Health back in uh, 1976. Hell, H-E-L-L? No, Health. Health. Uh, prophetess okay. of health. I, I was and, like, uh, mm, hell, mm, interesting. <laughs> no, but uh, he was just focusing on her health 
plagiarisms and stuff. And yeah. um, he, it was a great book. I loved it. I was just starting out in the Adventist ministry. I took it with me to camp meeting and uh, the general or the conference president gets up and he says, I hope none of you have read this book. Uh, you're forbidden to read this book. None uh, of you are to read this book. But here, uh, here's the rebuttal to it. You're all required to read this rebuttal and make sure you teach this to your church members. You know, that was the kind of garbage that we propaganda had. Propaganda 101. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. And and that's the same thing that would be done. You know, that's why Spectrum, which claims to be this great open journal, wouldn't even publish the response, my response to the book review of my book. Yeah. You know, that they wouldn't even put it on their website. I mean, it's just completely embarrassing that they engage in this kind of censorship in publications that claim to be open. Right. They're they're anything but open. There there is no open publication in Adventism anymore. Right. And that's really sad because Spectrum and Adventist Today used to be pretty open. Mm-hmm. I was on the board of Adventist Today for years and I I you know published a lot of stuff there that was pretty controversial. Mm-hmm. But then um they just start censoring my stuff. So I said, forget this. You know? yep. I'd be promised. I'd be told to write an article. I write it. I do all the research. And then some bigwig comes down and says, no, that can't be published. So yep. censorship 101. Yep. So tell me about, you know, the Jehovah's Witnesses, the Watchtower Society, were anti-internet for a really long time until they realized they were losing incredible numbers of people, particularly young people. Uh, Are the Adventists online? Do they have a presence or not much? Yeah, they would be a lot more in touch with that kind of thing than uh, Jehovah's Witnesses. Jehovah's Witnesses are more anti-culture than uh, Adventists. You know, they don't celebrate any of the holidays. Charles Taze Russell was a fraud, but uh, he didn't claim to be an absolute prophet and stuff the way Ellen White was. So he didn't have near the authority Right. That Ellen White has had in, in Adventist subculture. Right. And now the church just ignores anything they don't like about Ellen White. And they quote everything that they want to use to control people and sell her books and maintain power and control, which is a huge thing for Adventists. Yeah. Control. I you bet. Know, like you say in your book, it's control, control, control yep. <laughs> over so, everything. So do you have any idea how much wealth the uh, Seventh-day Adventist uh, organization has? Adventists are in a lot more trouble financially. They've had a lot of financial scandals. Ellen and James uh, were guilty of embezzlement that Ellen tried to justify through visions from God. and mm-hmm. So there's this history of uh, financial mismanagement. You can't even compare Adventists to the Mormons when it comes to wealth. They're much better at business. The uh, Mormons much, are. Yeah, the Mormons are much better yeah, at business. Yeah, they have over $100 billion slush yeah, fund. They have a much better system, too. Yeah. They're not paying six lo- levels of bureaucracy and all the crazy stuff that Adventists do, wasting money. Um, so they're a lot smarter financially, and they also help their members a lot more. Mm-hmm. financially. My wife and I rented to a Mormon couple and they ended up uh, getting a divorce uh, with abuse problem. And mm. um, the Mormon church stepped right in and paid their rent in full every month for three full years while the wife was trying to recover from this and stuff. So I'm sure you know, she was Adventist still was, in if they were yeah, paying for her. Yeah, she was still in. Yeah. yeah. 
and Adventists would never do that. They don't have that kind of money. Yeah. And um, the Mormons know, want I, the kids too. They want to keep the kids pure. And so yeah. they'll go out of their way to, to fund things like that. So, so many people, doctor, um, when they leave a, a religious cult, a Bible-esque kind of cult, um, when they when they realize the leader is was a liar and a scam artist, they get very angry at God and they like turn away from Christianity. You mm -hmm. went towards Christianity. Talk a little bit about about what your your journey was and also yeah. the young people that you're seeing who are coming out. Like, are they are yeah. they hungry for a substitution or an alternative that's healthier or? Yeah, I would say Mormons do a much better job with their young people than what Adventists do. And and I, I think Adventists are in trouble with their young people today, very much so. But uh, they were in trouble with me. I, I wanted nothing to do with the church till I had this experience at 16. And then that became a true spiritual experience for me that was really outside of Adventism, even mm. though I had grown up in Adventism. And that was the avenue I had to try to make a difference. So I went into the Adventist ministry and with the hope of trying to change the church in as healthy a direction as I possibly could. But uh, I, I never really bought into the party line of Adventism. It was always very problematic in a number of areas. But I didn't realize how significant that was mm -hmm. for years, mm -hmm. you know. But the more I learned historically, and, and even when I left in 2010, I'd written a couple books that were pretty strong in 2008 and 9 about Ellen White and the church. And I was done with Adventism. I, I never planned on uh, writing anything more, having anything to do with Adventism. Mm -hmm. And then the White estate got hacked. That's the estate that controls all of Ellen White's writings. And they're very secretive and very dishonest. And uh, they got hacked uh, by an Australian group. And their secret stuff got exposed, an insider helped them. Oh. And uh, all of a sudden, here I am uh, realizing, holy Toledo, these people lied to me. They, had, they withheld this stuff from me as a researcher, which they weren't supposed to do. Right. So here I'm about three years out of Adventism, and I'm finding all this stuff that got put on the internet. And I'm saying, uh-oh, I better write another book. This is ridiculous. Uh, yeah. We, we find out Ellen White was a total alcoholic when she said that God was going to condemn anyone who ever touched a drop of alcohol to their lips. And, wow. you know, on and on it goes. Uh, her hypocrisy, she, she's talking about how God hates children. She he hates her own child. You know, he, wow. she's telling her son, if you don't obey me, God doesn't love you anymore. That's, and then she's telling all the kids of her church, God hates you. When you disobey, you know, this is a prophet of God saying God showed her this envision that God hates all these children. And this was all stuff that the white estate was withholding from the church for obvious reasons, you know, racist stuff. And, yeah. And so this stuff comes out and I said, holy Toledo, I've got to revisit this again. So mm -hmm. I researched it all again and and uh, explored that question I told you about, you know, yep. will it stand up to historical and psychological scrutiny? And I found, yes, it absolutely will. You know, the historical evidence is quite overwhelming here that she was an absolute fraud. And uh, 
And they've done a really good job of hiding that. Mm-hmm. You know, most people think of Ellen White as a pretty substantial religious leader compared to what she really was, mm. a con artist and a fraud. And um, eventually it's going to come out. You know, eventually people are going to know. But the church does everything they can to try to hide it. In the meantime, I'm trying to minister to as many formers. And, you know, some of them have a lot of anger. Some of them are like me. They've found a much healthier spirituality, and they're celebrating that. And, you know, I think a neat thing would be if if you guys hosted like a national conference um, for people coming from cults of all backgrounds, I I think there'd be a ton of people just from my thread alone that would attend something like that and mm-hmm. love to hear all these different cult speakers and people come together and resonate with each other in terms of what it's like to grow up in a cult and all this kind of stuff. Yeah, it's, it's a, an idea that has, you know, circled around and around. I am so busy, it's hard to think about taking on a project of that magnitude, but I agree. Yeah. It would be absolutely fascinating and I think very healing because mm. when you come out of one group, you are thinking about your group, and but it's easier to see the abuse in another group and right, then make right. the parallels to your own mm-hmm. group. When I wrote Combating Cult Mind Control, people were like, oh, yeah, Moon's definitely not the Messiah. He's definitely a crook and a hypocrite. Uh, so I'll read that book, and then they read it, and they're like, "Wait a minute, this is describing the same, the same patterns, the same Absolutely. unhealthy patterns." Yes, very much so. And um, part of my work, doctor, and I, as a psychologist, I hope you will, uh, uh, you know, uh, be be uh, interested in this. But I decided to do an online course with the help of a social work professor to kind of teach the basics, the foundational theories of how to understand mind control and as mm-hmm. a dissociative disorder, to explain phobias and outline the different forms. Because a lot of people don't think about a one-on-one relationship being yeah. B-I-T-E, model of authoritarian control, but it can be. Or mm-hmm. a country like China could be you know, B-I-T-E as well, and to just offer frames, psychoeducational frames that would help people identify, hey, I have a cult member in my in my uh, practice and I never even thought about it. Like, I'm curious how many people in psychiatric hospitals over the decades came from an, a Seventh-day Adventist background, but the mm-hmm. clinicians never thought to think and right. even ask Absolutely. about it. The programming of phobias and that absolutely that, that they you know they made us take so many courses and ethnicity and family therapy ethnicity and that but not a single course when i was going through my phd program in in spirituality right and, you know exactly and, and spirituality is much more innate to people than ethnicity i mean obviously ethnicity is something everyone has but spirituality is a much more universal reality for people than focusing on their ethnicity. And, right. Uh, exactly. Uh, yeah. And and just to to help explain to people the notion that healthy religion 
uh, you know, the, 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 the witnesser or the recruiter should tell you up front who they are, what they believe, and what will happen if you join their particular denomination or come to their church. And right. the leadership should not be malignant narcissists who is pathological liar and thinks the ends right. justify the means, but psychologically healthy with a board of you know, directors that make sure everything's being done for the good of the congregation. And, and yeah, so. I, and, and when you talk about that, you know, Adventists, all their public uh, attempts to win souls, as they put it, uh, you know, revelation seminars, they, they start in a public building so people won't know who they are. They don't identify who they are. Seriously, they, I didn't know that. Oh, seriously, yeah. So it's yeah, deceptive seriously. recruitment. Yeah, it, it's intentionally deceptive for the first seven weeks where they're trying to brainwash them in their stuff. And then uh, once they get them brainwashed in the Sabbath and all this, then they move it into an Adventist church. Uh, and they tell them who they are, but uh, they're intentionally deceptive and uh, hiding who they are. And it's just, you know, the leadership has inherited the same kind of gross dishonesty that Ellen and James practiced their entire lives. Yeah, and, it kind uh, of gets passed down, victim, yeah. victimizer. Well, it was done to me and I'm yeah. doing pretty well, so I'll do it to right. other people. It's like genograms, you know, you, you trace the genogram and there it is in Adventist history right through the... Yeah, I think of it more like a <laughs> multi-level marketing scam where you, you know, right. get, get extra bonus points for the more people you recruit and such. Uh, yeah. Dr. Stephen Daly, uh, amazing. Uh, Ellen G. White, A Psychobiography. We're going to do a blog based on this, and we'll add links to your to your social media, if you like, etc. cetera. Uh, I'm yes. going to give you the last words. How would yeah, you Yeah, we're like posting the bite mark models that we did online, too. They'll be on uh, YouTube. Uh, for people Great. that want to go through that and hear the feedback from the people that were on there. Uh, we have our Keys Family Resource Center, which, um, you know, it reaches out to families. And it, it includes people who've uh, not just been deceived in Adventism, but, you know, um, they're, they're basically... Uh, you know, being deceived in other cults or that kind of thing as well. Mm -hmm. And um, if you go on the, uh, it, it's keys, F-R-C, K-E-Y-S, F-R-C dot org, mm -hmm. O-R-G. Great. And if you go on there, um, you, you'll you find, uh, you know, a link that for uh, recovering ex-victims of Great. contemporary cults. Great. Uh, that's an acronym, uh, R-E-V, Revoke, R-E-V-O-C-C, -C, uh, Revoke. And um, that gives people an opportunity to ask questions and learn more about uh, overcoming this kind of deception and stuff. So awesome. uh, we'll look forward to working with you guys. Yes. And I'd like to see a whole network of people that are trying to work together in this area, you know, I've read Robert Wifton and a lot of the other cult people that talk about alternative reality. And Adventists definitely try to create that, an alternative reality and isolate and um, 
you know, if anyone questions, they get beaten down. And it's just the same old thing that you find in cults. Yes. Well, I want to thank you for being you, uh, honest, integrity, uh, historian, psychologist, pastor, um, uh, wanting to help others to, to, uh, to get out of bondage and to reclaim their own personal dignity and their own conscience and get to a healthy spiritual place. Uh, So I want to thank you so much for your good work, Dr. Daly. My privilege. Uh, Thanks for the invitation. I love your work. I love what you're doing. And uh, I'll be excited about any opportunities we have to network. Yeah, we'll be in touch about uh, trying to develop a program. Maybe we'll start with an online webinar or something, and you can be one of our scholars. Um, Be awesome. That would be great. Thank you so much. Thank you, Stephen. That's it for today's episode of The Influence Continuum. I've been your host, Dr. Stephen Hassan. Theme music for the podcast is by Nasser Malik. To keep up to date with me and happenings that I think are important, please visit my website at freedomofmind.com. There you'll find in-depth articles about cults, mind control, and other relevant topics. You can also find me on Twitter and Instagram at cultexpert. If you want to develop a comprehensive understanding of these topics, I highly recommend my books, Combating Cult Mind Control, Freedom of Mind, and The Cult of Trump in that order. These books are a culmination of 45 plus years of experience and will really help you grasp the complex web of undue influence. I have also launched a new nine-hour online course for anyone interested in a deep dive into issues related to recovering from undue influence in all forms. While this course is designed for clinicians, everyone can benefit. If you're a former member, I congratulate you for your bravery and invite you to use the hashtag IGOTOUT and join our online community at IGOTOUT.org. Remember, love is stronger than mind control. And thanks for listening.